So we're taking a few weeks, um, really the entire uh, spring, or this time of the year, January through uh, the end of April, to look at the Gospel of Luke. And we're going to look at it in, in several ways. We're looking at categories of Jesus' life, then we're going to look at kingdom parables that he told, and then um, on Easter Sunday we're going to start a series on this parable in Luke 15 that you have thought is called the prodigal son, and it's not. It's not what Jesus called it. He called it, there was a man with two sons. That's actually very, very, very important. And the categories of Jesus' life and ministry that I'm using, because the book of Luke is so long, I wanted to give us categories to, to, to see the face of Jesus as best we can through the eyewitness accounts, to hear his voice as best we can as human beings who don't get to walk around with him, were fights. The first uh, three sermons on this were about fights that Jesus picked in synagogues with religious leaders who were passionate but often missing the point. Um, he picked fights with his best friends because he was fighting with them because he loved them and longed for them to understand him in a more clear fashion. He fought with demons. The Bible says there's more to the world than we can see and understand and uh, the fights really weren't fights. They were more like demons fleeing in terror because Jesus has real power and they're incredibly limited um, in theirs. But he fought with them and if uh, I pretend... That there isn't more to the world, you might open your Bible and be confused. The category that we looked at last week, and then we're going to look at this week and the next week, are the teachings of Jesus. Um, these things overlap. He taught uh, his, his miracles and even his fights served to support his teachings. But for you and I to try and see Jesus clearly and hear him clearly, I'm picking on some categories. So we're going to look at his teachings. Last week we looked at a wonderful teaching that he gave that in him, you and I can be free from over-concern or anxiety. Wonderful good news. This week, we're looking at a much more challenging text that reminds us of a tension. And the tension, I don't know how you've experienced it or heard it, but for me, it's something like this. Grace is free. All you need is need, Flannery O'Connor said, and she was right. All we need to be reconciled to God through the work of Christ is need. And yet, the life, the with God life, the life of a follower of Jesus is different. And in fact, costly, especially as the world would esteem it. Right? So on the one hand, there's nothing that we do to be reconciled to God. On the other hand, living in response to God's love is not an easy thing to do. I think if you and I are are honest, none of the commands are easy. Love God above everything else. Don't worship stuff. Carry his name with honor. Take a day off. Honor your father and mother. Don't lie, don't cheat, don't lust, don't steal, don't covet. Every one of those is hard to do. So there's this tension. And Jesus... I think enjoyed leaving you and I with attention. Did not resolve it too quickly so that you and I might know how to remember that we live in a broken world and still see him and the joy and the peace that he offers. If you have your Bible, turn with me to Luke chapter 12, verses 22 through 34. And if you, have, if you did not bring a Bible, there are some in the back, but if you have a smartphone... You have a Bible on there. You can use Google or you can download Life. Anyway. 
So the tension, again, is that grace is free. There's nothing you and I can do to merit eternity with God. That's free. At great cost to Him and free to us. But the with God life is somehow costly to us, according to Jesus. And He said to His disciples in verse 22, Therefore I tell you... Oh, whoops. I'm sorry. My bookmark was in last week's page. We're in Luke chapter 14. Apologies. Verses 25 through 33. Hey, I heard pages turning. We're not all smartphone people? That's That's great news. Not that there's anything wrong with your smartphone. I'm just happy to hear some pages turning. We're actually in Luke chapter 14, verses 25 through 33. Now great crowds accompanied him, and he turned and said to them, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. That's one way to thin a crowd. (laughs) Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which of you, desiring to build a tower does not first sit down and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it. Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who see it begin to mock him, saying the man began to build and was not able to finish. Or what king, going out to encounter another king in war, will not sit down first and deliberate whether he is able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000? And if not, while the other is yet a great way off, He sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. So therefore, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my my disciple. The gravity that I feel in this moment is this. Many of us attend church and few of us live this way in full allegiance to Christ. There's a wide spectrum, I believe, of humans and how they think about and uh, talk about the existence of God. That spectrum kind of looks like this. There are atheists, which are frankly among the most thoughtful in our society. It's about 6% of the population, and they generally know more about the Bible than you and I do. Then there are the agnostics, much larger percentage of the population. That Agnostic is a word that just means no knowledge. I'm just not sure about any of that. I'm not, not going to put my cards down either way. Then there's belief. Many men and women believe. But it's, it's just light. Then there's religion. Religious people do religious things. They sing songs. They show up to take sacraments. They even have a Bible, may or may not read it. Then there's passionate religious people. This is actually the most dangerous category. Those that are passionate about their songs and passionate about their sacraments and passionate about the things that they do that merit God's favor. And then there are followers. And the difference between a passionate religious person and a follower of Jesus is humility. Somehow... By the way that Jesus and the rest of the New Testament describes a Christ follower. A Christ follower is to be fully convicted of what they believe and humble. So somehow the most clear about what we believe 
and also the least offensive in conversation. Atheist, agnostic, belief, religion, passionate religion, and follower. Just to give you a little hint of what we're going to start talking about at Easter. That parable that I referenced in Luke 15, the one that you think is called the parable of the prodigal son, that I thought was called the parable of the prodigal son for years. Jesus said there was a man with two sons. And one of them doesn't go to the party at the end of the story. That's why I say being a passionate religious person is dangerous compared to being a follower. Why am I saying all this? Because Jesus said, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother, and you're like, this is great, I'm killing it. I hate my parents. Fantastic! He did not mean hate them with your activity. This is not a command. This is a rhetorical device He's offering a comparison between our affection for those neighbors and our affection for him. The reason I'm creating this spectrum of atheist, agnostic, belief, religion, passionate religion and followers because Jesus said if anyone does not hate his father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. He does not mean that you are to hate any of those people as an activity. He means you are to hate them in comparison of love. So still love them, but you love him alone here. And I'm worried about my own heart and mind and about yours. That some weeks I'm just a believer and other weeks I'm passionately religious. And I come back to the text and I see there a call to humility, to humbly follow him. Jesus offers us this comparison to push on us that this is no small thing. Faith in him. Would you pray with me? Lord, would you help us to grapple with your teaching? In our minds and hearts, in our various experiences and places we've come before, many of us have been hurt, been hurt by religious people. Many of us are skeptical because we actually take your word seriously. Many of us have never questioned some because of your Holy Spirit, others because it is, a, it is a scary endeavor to question what we believe. And yet your words force us to because of their power and precision. So help us this morning to grapple with them. Amen. So Jesus said to hate our families. It's a comparison. And he said to carry around a giant execution and torture device. And... I'm fine with us loving crosses. If you're wearing a cross, that is totally fine with me. But I do, we need to spend just a little bit of time imagining what it was like for a first century listener when he said, whoever does not bear his own cross, I'm in verse 27, and come after me cannot be my disciple. The only concept you have for that. In our other sanctuary, there's another cross, um, with a smaller head beam, which is probably a little more like a lot of the crosses that were in the first century. Your only concept for that and mine is it's a device used to torture and to kill people. So thousands of people are following Jesus because he taught compellingly, because he healed, because he had power over nature and disease. And then he says, you're going to need to carry around an execution and torture device. Why would he say that? 
The reason I'm pausing is not because I don't have more things written down. I have plenty of more things written down. The reason I'm pausing is I want you and I to grapple with the tension a little bit because Jesus doesn't fully resolve it. In fact, that's part of the reason we have more than four books in the New Testament. Because Jesus said things like this, and then he kind of just let it sit for a minute. He loved the tension it creates in honest listeners. And so we have the rest of the New Testament explaining statements like this in their entirety. Before he went to the cross, the Last Supper, he explained a lot of it. And in retrospect, the disciples were like, oh, right, he said all this. But this is very challenging. And I believe it is in this challenge that we see the truth and the power of Christianity that transcends our ideas of philosophy and religion and is in fact the only thing capable of making men and women, men and women of truth and love. In our own hearts, before God, and before neighbor. I believe it's only in a knowledge of how much God loves us, but also that we were born into a world broken, and that we participate in that brokenness with our own sin and willingness and ability to hurt others, that we're reconciled through the cross back to God. That's the only way that men and women become men and women of love and truth. You're like, I love the love part, not the truth part. That's not love. I love the truth part, but I'm not very soft. Maybe you could be a little softer. I believe in our faith in Christ. We don't have faith in the cross, but the cross is necessary. Because sin is a big deal. I believe faith in Christ frees us into the most full us, the most full versions of ourselves, which are men and women who are loving and truthful. The most challenging, in my opinion, the most challenging part of this text is not that Jesus said to hate our families. And it's not even that he said we are to carry around a giant execution and a torture device. It's also that he said after careful planning. He tells these two little parables about building a tower and about being a king. And you're like, I'm never going to build a tower. This doesn't apply to me. This one section of the Bible I don't need to learn anything more about. I'm certainly never going to be a king. Are there even kings still around in the world? He's telling two stories to help us grapple with the fact that we are supposed to consider his words, and his work. And the reason that I say that that's the most challenging thing is most of us don't plan our lives, right? Life is what's happening while you're making other plans. Who said that? The Beatles? I first saw it in an 80s movie. Some of you plan well your lives, but mostly it has to do with having a peaceable life and what to do with your money. Most of us do not actually do what Christ is saying here. Which is considered, do I actually believe his claims? That he was God? That he lived a sinless life? And therefore that my whole life ought to be lived in response to that? When I first went to college, um, I was like, all right, I want to study abroad. That's part of the point of college is making sure that my parents end up paying for me to go to Europe. And I was like, I should do that second semester of my junior year. And 
it never happened because I only went to the office once my freshman year because I just forgot. I'm not a planner. Um, many of you know me pretty well, and that surprises you not at all. Like I, I do plan things, but um, that one slipped away. And it still kind of bothers me because it still seems like that would have been fun. Second semester, junior year, perfect time, go to England as an English major. Anyway, and I think many of us live our lives that way. We think, I should think about that religious stuff. I'm a follower of Christ. Like we say that. We're not actually following. And we don't stop and consider. So I'm trying to give you a minute, mostly by saying words, but also by pausing. Are you trusting Christ with your heart and with your decisions? Do you know what he said about himself being the way, the truth, and the life? And I say that, and it's very interesting to me to say that because there are men and women at this church who are not followers of Christ, and they have been honest with me about that. And I tell them that it's an honor that they have told me that, and I'm glad they're with us. And I try and say that without being weird, because pastors often just come off weirdly, um, especially to those who are not uh, Christians. And I also say it because those men and women, I think, have done this, what Jesus is talking about, more than many of us who profess faith. They actually know that if Jesus didn't rise from the dead, what he said was largely nuts. I mean, you know another way that Jesus thinned the crowds? Was he described communion. So he's like, you're going to eat my flesh and drink my blood. John chapter 6. And people stopped following him because that's what we should do if someone says, you should feast on me forever or eternally. We're like, what does that mean? The reason I brought up the men and women who are not followers of Christ that are listening in and watching how you and I live and treat one another is I am afraid that they've actually considered the claims of Jesus more directly than many of us have. So I'm trying to give you a minute. Some of you uh, are trained medically. You know this uh, spectrum when you come across a person who's incapacitated, AVPU, alert, verbal, pain, unresponsive. You know what I'm talking about? So you come into a room and someone's laying on the ground and you, you, you ask them a question. Are you awake? Are you alert? Is everything okay? What's going on? Are you just taking a nap? If they talk, then you're good. If they don't talk, you keep talking because you really want them to say something back to you. You want to know if they're aware of their name. You want to know if they know what year it is, because you, you don't know anything about this person. Then, if they don't respond, you're supposed to actually make them uncomfortable. And then if, if nothing happens, then they're unresponsive. And you, you call 911, maybe you already called 911, but that's the, those are the steps to figure out if someone is alert and oriented. And I'm afraid that from a spiritual standpoint, most of us are not spiritually alert and oriented. And the reason is the world and our own flesh and the evil one push back on belief and trust that God is good, that he loves you, that joy is found through a relationship with Christ. But this is the time that we take to look at Jesus' very challenging statements that you and I plan and actually consider. Do I believe what Jesus said about himself is true? And do I then humbly follow him? I'm nervous that on this scale, we're somewhere in between. We're not alert. We're maybe kind of verbal. 
We don't even respond necessarily to pain, although that's when a lot of people come to faith. Their life is shaken. They're disoriented. And they realize their need. I think the most challenging part of this is that Jesus is saying that we've taken careful planning, and I wonder if you have. I wonder if you have actually stopped and prayed and thought and discussed with a trusted friend who won't just judge you for asking about your doubts. Whether you believe Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. And the thing that I've alluded to already that I find incredibly interesting is that he didn't say uh, why. Jesus, in this section especially, but generally in his teachings in the Gospels, not until the end, did he say why it was worth it. That belief spectrum that I... um, that I gave earlier, agnostic, or atheist, to agnostic, to belief, to religion, to passionate religion, to, to follower. I preached about a year ago a very similar point, and a man stopped me after the service, and I was so thankful for this. And the spectrum I gave then was not belief, religion, followers, just a three-part spectrum. And he said, I'm so much more comfortable with religious. I am much more comfortable being a religious person. And I just thanked him. I thank you for your honesty. And I hope you and I grow together. Humble followers of Christ, not just religious people. Jesus didn't say why, which again is why we have the rest of the New Testament, why we don't just have four books in the New Testament, but 27. The book of Philippians takes about 11, 12 minutes to read. It's four chapters long. It's written by a man in prison who had become a follower of Christ, and he says the word joy 17 times, that he has it. What is that all about? That's why. The cost of discipleship is great, not because it merits salvation, but because the world will not understand it and it will not be easy to actually follow. But what we receive is joy, contentment in all circumstances. Does that mean I'll always feel content? No. But will you always have contentment? Will we always have contentment? Yes, according to the book of Philippians. At the end of the book of John, Jesus speaks at length that he is trustworthy and true. And the book of Colossians tells us that because of the work of Jesus, you and I are reconciled ones. And if you know that God exists, if the Holy Spirit has given you a sense of eternity in your heart, as the writer of Ecclesiastes says, and you know that your propensity to sin and the brokenness of the world is a big deal, then that is the sweetest news we have ever heard, that we are reconciled ones. That's why we follow. For the peace and the joy and the righteousness that come with it from the Holy Spirit. So I believe if we take this text seriously, what are our options? That's like... 
I feel like that's like intense intro music for my conclusion. <laughs> I'm sorry to embarrass you, but there is a silence button. It's part of it. Never mind. It's happened to all of us. Let's be honest. Right? It's okay. Jesus didn't say why, and yet we have the rest of the New Testament answering the question. And the thing I want to point out is, if we take this text seriously, our options are, it's all or nothing. The spectrum from atheist to agnostic to belief to religion to passionate religion, all of those are not humble followers of Christ, which means we're not receiving joy, peace, not reconciled to him. So what do you do about that? Well, if you've been a follower of Christ for a long time, you simply say, I love you and trust you, Lord, and I continue to do so. If you're looking on and listening in and considering the gospel of Jesus, all you need is need. That is not all that will be charged to you over the course of your life because the decisions of the with God life are not easy, but all you begin with is need. Would you pray with me? Lord, would you help us to take seriously your teaching? Would you help us to believe in our bones that you're good, that you're for us, that your work on the cross took care of our sin once and for all? And would you then help us to humbly follow you? In your name we pray, amen.